Hey there, this is Story Story Late Night, the positively shameless black sheep of our Story Story Night family, where you hear bleep-worthy stories recorded live on our unblushing theme, Ruby Slippers. This episode highlights our curated stories. We need your support. Text the code STORYPOD44321. This summer, we are following the yellow brick road with tales told live without notes or inhibitions in the walled yard of the old Idaho penitentiary. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. We're exploring stories of being in someone else's shoes from our featured storytellers, Larry Chase, Rachel Boxa, and Jinx Jenkins. There's no place like late night. There's no place like late night. Larry Chase. Good evening. From 1969 through 1976, I was a TV weatherman at Channel 2. I wasn't a meteorologist, I was a TV weatherman. So I would take what the National Weather Service gave me and then I would repeat it. So it was a no-stress job. If the weather was wrong, it was their fault. I wasn't forecasting the weather, I was just repeating what the experts told me. Now, we've been kind of hot around here lately, but I'm going to take you back to the time of August of 1971. We had 10 consecutive days of temperatures 100 degrees or higher. Yes, in 1971. Here at the prison, if you happen to be visiting or incarcerated, the temperature on the upper tier of cells was 118 degrees. There was no place for the inmates to find shade or to get cool because the prison authorities had found two escape tunnels. So they decided to lock everybody down. It didn't take 10 days for the inmates to get really upset about this. And so there was a riot. And during the riot, there were two buildings set on fire and two inmates were stabbed, one fatally. The inmate that was stabbed fatally, there were three people involved, three other inmates. One named Danny that did the stabbing, one named Bill that had hit him, and one named Ron that had lured him to the gymnasium. All three pled guilty, even though Ron and Bill said they didn't know that Danny was going to stab him to death. So... They all got sentenced, but it was various times. In uh, August of 1975, I was still doing weather, and I had been doing some volunteer work at the prison. I opened the morning paper on an August day of 75, and the headline was, Escaped Murderer on the Loose in Boise. Well, I wanted to read further because maybe I had met this inmate during the time I had done some volunteering. And sure enough, I recognized the the name. And as you read the story, you found out that he was actually on work release and he had walked away from the job that he had. And he was a minimum security inmate. It intrigued me why he had done this because he didn't have that much more time left. I went into work that very same day a lady came into Channel 2, and she asked to see me, and she introduced herself as inmate Bill's girlfriend. And she wanted to tell me a story as to why Bill had left. 
I said, sure, but I'm a weatherman. I, I'll, I'll send you over to somebody in the news in, uh, later on. And she said, no, she just wanted to tell me the story. And I said, okay. So as it turns out, the murder that occurred in 1971 never really ended because inmate Danny had changed his mind that he really didn't want to plead guilty. He was trying to get a new trial. And the previous month, he had gotten a hearing to see if he could get a new trial. Inmate Bill was asked to come and testify to what he had done in 1971 during the original killing. They said they would reduce his sentence, and they also said they would keep Bill and inmate Danny apart because we all know what happens when somebody tells on somebody else in prison. People don't take kindly, and the word is snitch or rat, and nobody wants to be one of those. The hearing takes place. Danny does not get his new trial. Bill goes back to prison. Danny goes back to prison. And the authorities come in and say, you know, we told you that once you testify, we're going to reduce your sentence, and we're going to keep you two apart, and we're going to move Danny to another prison, and we can't do that. We're, you're both going to be in the general population. But we talked to Danny, and he said, it's okay. He's not going to hurt you. <laughs> and Bill said he'd been to three county fairs and two circuses, but this one was a new one on him. So he started giving away all his prized possessions, all that you can have in a cell, and he starts saying goodbye to all of his best friends. And a week later, he walks away. That's what happened. And I told Bill's girlfriend, I said, that's a great story. I said, uh, you know, I think you ought to tell all the local media. I'm a weatherman. I wear weatherman shoes. But I want you to go ahead and uh, tell as many people as you can. Here's my phone number if you've got any questions about how to approach them. So now we're going to jump to the next Saturday. I'm home playing with my one-year-old, my four-year-old. And the phone rings. I answer it. And a voice says, uh, Larry, this is inmate Bill. I said, oh, how are you? <laughs> and he said, well, I'm fine. He says, uh, I want to give myself up. I said, I think that's a great idea. The paper is calling you an escape murderer, and uh, I don't think you've got much of a chance being out here. He said, okay, but there are three conditions. I said, well, what are your conditions? And he says, one, I don't want to be charged with escape. Two, I want to be transferred to the Oregon prison. And three, I want to be allowed to be in their culinary program because that's the field I want to get into when I get out of prison. I said, that sounds great. I said, why don't you call a lawyer, call your... He said, I don't want to talk to a damn lawyer. He said, I've had it with lawyers. They promised me that they were going to keep me separated. They promised me my sentence was going to be reduced. I said, okay, how about somebody at the prison? He said, I don't trust them either. I said, well, you're going to have to find somebody that can do this negotiation. He says, I only trust you. I said, I'm a weatherman. I've got my weatherman shoes on. He says, he says, that's it. He says, if you don't do it, I'm not going to give myself up. I said, okay, give me a couple of hours. Call me back in a couple of hours. He says, okay. So what am I going to do now? What would Henry Kissinger do? He was a great negotiator. Let me think about this. I guess I could go on TV and say, tomorrow it'll be mostly sunny with a chance of surrender. 
and see if anybody buys into it. Finally, I remembered that the Attorney General for the state of Idaho, Wayne Kidwell, lived not too far away from me, and I had met him once or twice when he came through Channel 2. So I said, okay, that's worth it. So I, I pick up the phone. And you remember in those days in 71, the phone book was this big and everybody's phone number was in it? Piece of cake. Call Wayne Kidwell at home. Hi, Wayne. This is Larry Chase, the weatherman. And we met once when you were down at Channel 2. And I've uh, got Bill who escaped and he wants to give himself up and he's got three conditions. Wayne said, where are you? And I, I, I'm at my house. He said, can you come to my house and explain this? So I did. And I gave him the entire situation, and he said, you know, last year in California, there was a case that we're all using as precedent now that if an inmate escapes from prison or walks away in fear for their life, they will not be prosecuted. He said, so I think he's on pretty solid ground. I said, great. He says, give me an hour, and... I'll call you and let you know. He said, I do want to talk to the Ada County prosecuting attorney. I said, okay, great. So I go back home. Bill calls. I said, I'm not ready to help you yet. I'm going to get the attorney general to call me and maybe we'll have good news. Call me back in a half an hour. Okay, fine. So about 15 minutes later, Wayne calls and he said, I can't get a hold of the prosecuting attorney, but I used to be the Ada County prosecuting attorney. I think this will work. It, it sounds very, very reasonable. Let's have him give himself up right away. I said, that sounds like a great idea. So the phone rings a few minutes later, and it's Bill. I said, Bill, we got it all set. I said, you're going to give yourself up. You're going to get all these things that you wanted, and it's all going to end peacefully, and isn't that great? And he says, I'm not sure I want to give myself up today. I said, now, do you, this was your idea. It wasn't mine. I wear weatherman shoes. I put on my negotiator shoes. I got this deal done, so you need to give yourself up. He said, I'll call you back in 15 minutes. Okay, fine. So I play with my kids. I do a few other things, and then the phone rings, and Bill says, okay, it's a deal. And I said, okay, great. Let's go ahead. Okay, all right, I'll meet you at 6 o'clock at the Ada County Courthouse right across the street from the Capitol building. That's where the jail was, and uh, we'll meet at 6 o'clock. He says, okay, good. All right, I'm getting these things done. I wonder what my boss thinks of me doing all these things. I don't think it's in my job description to negotiate as a weatherman. So I called my boss. He said, I'll have our attorney call you. I said, okay, it's a done deal. I hope he doesn't say anything bad. So he calls me, the attorney does, and he says, no, things like this have happened before. And I said, to a weatherman? He said, well, actually, to a newsman. I, okay, what do, am I okay with this, with, with the company? And he said, sure, sure, it sounds just fine. I said, okay, great. And the time was moving. So it was getting to be about 5.30, and Bill was supposed to be down there. Oh, oh, one more step. I better do this because I do also work for the television station, and I hang around the newsroom. They won't give me a desk to sit there, but I hang around there. So I called the reporter, Tim Storrs, and I say, Tim, we're going to have uh, uh, Wayne Kidwell at the uh, courthouse, and the inmate that escaped is going to give himself up to Wayne because it wouldn't be good to give, give yourself up to a weatherman. It wouldn't make a good story. Okay, great. So we get down there. It's a few minutes before 6. Wayne Kidwell is there. I'm there. The newsman is there. We're going on. No bill. Six o'clock comes. No bill. I see a car go by. 
I see the car go, same car go by a different time. The car actually goes around the block and lets Bill off, I guess because the person that was driving didn't want to be recognized. And sure enough, here comes Bill. And he walks right in. And all the sheriff's deputies, their eyes are about this big. And there it was. Bill got everything he wanted. The attorney general got Bill. And Tim got an exclusive news story. And I got to go back home and put my weatherman shoes on. Thank you. Yes, please join me in welcoming Rachel Baxa. Hi, uh, my name is Rachel, and uh, and I'm an alcoholic. And the first, <laughs> I see you. <laughs> and the first time that I had to say that, I thought I was going to die of rage. Uh, I grew up with a mother who's an addict, and um, she left for the first time when I was three months old, uh, and for the last time when I was nine months or nine years old. Um, and in between, she'd sober up, uh, meet some guy who'd come home with her and tattoo himself at our kitchen table or some glorious shit like that. Um, the wheels would inevitably fall off, and she'd be gone again. Uh, she was a teen mother and the product of the long and proud backwoods southern tradition of child abuse. And um, whatever she was or wasn't, though, I find myself even now wanting to explain her to you, to, to tell you what a monster she was, um, and to tell you how wonderful she is, uh, to tell you how much I hated her, for a long, long time, and how much I love her, how I love her so much that I can smell her still right now, standing here, 1,786 miles away. <sighs> Whatever she was, she brought me into this world, furious and noisy and loud and determined to be anything else. Anything but a mom who could leave her children behind, anything but a woman who always needed a man, and anything but my mother's daughter. The day that my son was born, uh, he made these incredible little growling noises. And I don't know if you know this, but like, no matter how full your belly gets in this life, if your mom wasn't around, there's always this mother hunger. It just rumbles inside of you, and it never really stops. And the first time that my son made those hungry little noises, hungry noises that I could feed, I felt pretty determined that he would never feel the mother hunger himself, that he would never even know that it existed if I could help it. So I turned my life upside down. I turned my living room into a Montessori school. I bought miniature everything. I stayed up all night reading all of the parenting forums and uh, learning about gentle parenting and, and how to talk to children and how to engage with them and trying to breastfeed, which was also a nightmare for me, so kudos to you. Um, and it was all right until it wasn't until I was 27 and suddenly found myself the single mom of an 11-month-old and an almost two-year-old, and I was on my own, and all my little mommy issues just started to bubble to the surface. By the time that I was 30, it was time for me to sober up, uh, which in and of itself is a beast, but um, at that point, I was fucked financially um, and career-wise, and so I was about to lose my car. I was in the process of losing my house, and uh, pretty much the only thing I had left was that I had not destroyed these children's lives. And um, 
So I made the hardest phone call that I've ever made. I called my terminally right ex-husband and I asked him if he would take the kids. Just for a little while, just for a minute, like there was an apartment on the horizon, I could see it, someone was gonna let us be their roommate, it was gonna be great, someone was gonna loan me a car, I was gonna find some money, I was gonna start waiting tables and it was gonna be fine. Um, until the first apartment fell through. Um, and when I found out that the first apartment fell through, I stayed in bed for three days. And during that time, I called my mother. And I told her what I had done. And I felt incredibly ashamed. And she said to me, don't let the despair get to you. That's what happened to me. Now, I had worked big girl jobs, and I had all of this bright, shiny promise, and I had read Maria Montessori's book, so that was not going to fucking happen to me. Except that it already was. Except that I was couch serving and waking up at 5 a.m. to drive this van that someone had loaned me to Meridian to pick up my kids and take them to McDonald's for breakfast with like the $7 that I had in my pocket and then driving them to school so that I could see them and then going home and sleeping and then coming back and getting them after school and keeping them for an hour or two and then taking them back to their dads and then driving to Boise to wait tables until 2 a.m. And I would do my best. I would wake up on Saturday mornings and I would walk up to their father's house, their father's door, <laughs> and I would knock on this perfect little red door with a perfect little wreath and I would look like something someone stepped in. And, uh, and I would step inside their warm home and like his new wife is like one of those sensey people. There's always like, like, it always smells really good in there. Like she's like baking a pie or something and I am not that person. And everything is in its place and everything's organized and there's like this giant canvas printout of their wedding photos on the mantle, like right as you walk in. And my children are holding their hands and, and I am a failure at this point, and uh, I would sh keep showing up, and they would show me their new shoes and their new toys and all the things I could not do, because all I could do at that point was get out of bed and show up and drop them off and wait tables and just try to keep showing up. That was all I had. I didn't have a damn other thing. And on Saturday mornings, I would pick them up and we would go down to the river and we would pretend that the banks next to the river were an enchanted forest. And we would find mirrored panes of glass and we would make wishes in them. There would be wishing mirrors. Or we would find like a little cement wall and, and we would pretend that like goblins had left messages for us. And this was what I had at the time. Um, except that I woke up one Saturday morning and I didn't want to go. I remember being a kid and waiting on my dad's front porch once for hours and I would not go inside and I waited and I waited and I waited for my mama to come and she didn't come you know and then that wasn't the first time and it wasn't the last time but for some reason this particular day sticks in my head and I suddenly understood exactly why she didn't come that day or any of the other days Right? Because when you show up and your hands are empty and it feels like maybe the best thing that you can do is shrink back out of their lives and let like the perfect little suburbia of it all scab over the wound that you have left. Like There's so much shame and so much fear there and you wonder if the best way to be a good mom is to just not be their mom. Is to let someone else do it, someone who can do it right. But that old mother hunger started to bubble up inside of me, you know? And 
I, I, I was suddenly filled with that despair. I didn't want to go. I wanted to run away. I was like looking at flights to Thailand. Like I didn't care. I needed to get away. And um, I understood my mother for the very first time, you know. But I also understood my children. I also know what, knew what it would look like to sit on that porch, that perfect, perfect porch of that perfect, perfect life and not have your mother, your mother show up. And I don't know if my mother had not given me the gift of that deep, like bone liquefying mother hunger, I don't know if I would have stayed. I don't know if I would have gotten in the car and gone over there. And so the question is, you know, did everything she did to me make me feel, get me to the place where I didn't want to show up that day? Or did everything she do, did to me make me so that I could show up anyway, in spite of the despair, in spite of wanting to melt away? So I kept going to work, and I had these, um, I would work these lunch shifts where I would bartend, and, and occasionally my ex would bring the kids in to see me, and they would order lunch, and they would get to say hi, and one day my manager was standing there, and my daughter tromped up to her, and she said, my mommy is working super hard, so we can all be together again soon. I don't know if there are words to tell you what it feels like, to have your child both announce that you aren't with them right now and also to be proud that you are going to get them back. And I couldn't make words come out of my mouth. And so I just looked down at these really crappy black boots that I would wear to wait tables because, um, and, and they were speckled with taco sauce and the, the, the soles were falling off because I had no money to buy any other shoes. And, um, and I stared at them. And the next day I went to pick up the kids and we went to the Enchanted Forest and we took off our shoes and we were squishing around in the mud. And, uh, and Georgia picked up those shitty boots <laughs> covered in taco sauce and they smelled like death inside. Um, and she put them on and they came all the way up to her hips. And she said, see, just like mama. And I remember doing the same thing with my mother, whatever kind of mother she was or whatever sketchy motherfucker was tattooing himself at the kitchen table, I remember crawling into the bottom of her closet and pulling out her shoes and walking around in them and wanting to be just like her. And, 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 and more than that, more than anything else in the world, I just wanted her. So in May of this year, I celebrated three years of sobriety. And my kids and I moved into this sweet little one-bedroom apartment with a backyard that I continue to let get overgrown. Shout out to my landlords who are here. Sorry. <laughs> we have beautiful little sunflowers in the front yard, and we dance in the kitchen. And my daughter wears my shoes, and my son sings too loud and flails his arms around. And we sing this song. And, and it's from a musical, and it's really cheesy. Um, and the words are, you matter to me. Simple and plain and not much to ask from somebody. And my mother and I don't really speak anymore. Um, because it was impossible for me to be both her daughter and their mother. But I will never forget what she gave me by reminding me not to let this despair win. And I will never forget what she gave me by giving me the mother hunger that keeps me showing up for them every day. Please welcome to the stage, Jinx Jenkins.
Five years ago, my father was dying. We didn't know it yet, but we knew. Um, he had had dementia for several years, and my mom, my mom, who had always kept his time together for him, had passed away a few years earlier. He'd started wandering away from home, and it was getting a little dangerous, and so being the youngest of three children, I decided it would be my job to move him from Ohio here to Idaho. I kind of always knew this would be my job. My brother and sister are both adopted, and they would joke with me that I was the only real one. Sometimes they would tease me when we were kids that my parents got to go into a room and pick them out, but they got stuck with me at the hospital. <laughs> so it kind of seemed natural that maybe I would take on this role. Um, my dad was absolutely thrilled to be moving out west. It was a big deal for him, and he would have done it in a covered wagon if you'd let him. <laughs> Even with his confusion, he was always one to make you laugh, always one to laugh at a joke, always one to remind you to laugh. And so in those early days when he moved here, we had a great time between visits to his favorite barbecue place and drives to Table Rock and endless stops at Wendy's for Frosties. We had a really good time, and he was excited about this new beginning. But I knew it wasn't a beginning. About a month after my dad moved to Idaho, he was hospitalized. And this time it seemed <clears throat> a little more serious than just a mild confusion. He didn't know where he was or who he was. And it turned out that his kidneys were failing. I got a call in the produce section at Winco from his doctor telling me that it was actually end-stage bone cancer that had moved to his brain that was taking him down. I remember watching the water drip over the lettuces and thinking how cold it must be in that moment. They said that the pain of treatment would be a little too much considering his other issues. And I said I understood, and I hung up. I went back to the hospital right after that conversation, and my dad was as alert as ever and excited to see me. We didn't talk about the phone call at first, but I drilled him on the questions that the nurses had trained me with. I asked him his name. He knew that. I asked him the year, 1986. Not quite. He tried again, 2015, we were getting closer. And then the final question, do you know who the president is? Oh, fuck. <laughs> My dad had always followed politics very closely and had always been interested in what was going on in the news. And now I had to tell this man, who for all intents and purposes had no clue that Donald Trump was the president. <laughs> We both laughed. <laughs> then he got a little serious. <laughs> Eventually, we were able to tell my dad what was going on with his body and his brain, and he understood. 
And even though I could make decisions for him, I wanted him to know he was in charge. So I asked what he wanted to do, and he decided that he would just pray, which was something I didn't believe in at all. But we packed everything up at the hospital, including all the hospice pamphlets, and we headed for home. From there, things kind of did what things do in these kinds of situations. Um, I started getting calls from his assisted living facility that he had barricaded himself in his room and he was afraid someone was going to hurt him. And it was just a few minutes from my house, so I would rush over and I would calm him down and assure him that no one was going to hurt him, that he was safe. I would pat his hair while he laid in bed, make sure he had a glass of water on his nightstand, and his glasses were handy. Even when my dad lost the ability to speak because of the way his brain was affected, he would still communicate with me in ways I understood. Once when the uh, staff at the home shaved him into a mustache, a style he would have never worn, he greeted me with a little hoity-toity twist of his mustache. And even though he couldn't talk, I knew what that meant. (laughs) I had a two-year-old at home, and the comparisons between the time that I spent with these two loves of my life was not lost on me. I spent a lot of time teaching, a lot of time explaining. I thought about my dad like a TV with an old antenna where the picture would come in clearly some days and then completely snowy the next. And on some days, I could just make out in that snow some memories that he would explain to me of high school or his football buddies, his time in the Army or his time in the FBI. I could just make out the pictures. Some days it would be incredibly clear, like just after the events in Charlottesville, Virginia, which was near his hometown, He was concerned and scared, and he asked me what was happening. I broke it down into small chunks. I explained to him, and then the static came back. But I was really grateful for that moment of clarity when I could speak to him and comfort him. It was during that time when my dad was silent and I was starting to rage that I found something in an old trunk in a photo album a trunk my grandmother took to college with her that had been my coffee table, now returned to my dad, I found a manuscript with my mother's name on the cover. At this point, I was desperately lonely. I needed someone to tell me that this role I had chosen was my path, that this was right and this was what I was meant to do, and what I really needed was my mom. So when I found this book with her name, I knew it was something special. I opened it up and I started reading as my mother detailed her circumstances. Her father was now dying and it was her job to care for him like he had cared for her as a child. On each page she would tell a story of the way her father had cared for her and on the opposite page a comparative story of what she had done for him. 
she explained how her father had bathed her and taught her to ride a bicycle. And then she explained how she had worked to help her father wash his own hair, and then they learned to negotiate a walker together. She explained that he fed her and ironed her dresses after her own mother had died, and she kept him clean and fed him when he could no longer feed himself. I had watched her do this for her dad, and I knew I could do it for mine. But now, it was like my mother left me a manual, not just of how to be a perfect caretaker and how to walk in her shoes, but how to walk in my father's shoes as his child and now parent. I learned that all of the desperation that we find ourselves in and all the situations that we're not sure how to get out of all those paths have been walked before. And sometimes we find those answers when we least expect it. It reminded me of a story that my dad and I would always laugh about. When I was about six years old, we were vacationing um, at a beach in Maryland. And we had gone for a long walk down an oceanfront highway where I had pleaded for him to buy me a pair of neon yellow jelly shoes just begged. And through tantrum, he did buy those jelly shoes. I put them on immediately, and we walked, and we walked, and we walked, and we walked, and we walked. My feet were miserable, but I didn't want to complain because those neon yellow jelly shoes against my baby tan skin was the most beautiful thing I had ever seen in my life. <laughs> but finally, my dad noticed. And he said to me, here, put on your old shoes. They might not be the ones you want to wear, but they'll feel right. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Story Story Night is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise. Our theme song was composed by Ned Evett. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Please rate and review this podcast to help other story lovers find us. Thanks to guest host Beth Norton and musical guest Randy Anderson. Support this podcast by texting STORYPOD to 44321. Find out how to participate in our live show at www.storystorynight.org or visit us on Facebook. I'm Jody Eichelberger. Thanks for being a part of our story.